Hello and welcome to Discover Live, a podcast putting a spotlight on small and grassroots venues and in turn the new and established artists that grace their stages. We've had a little break from the pod as our lives behind the scenes have gotten a little hectic but we're back with some news. This is going to be the last episode of season one and what a way to end it. All the way back in 2020, we were fortunate enough to chat with producer Jim Abbas all about his humble beginnings, the importance of live music for a producer and his incredible career spanning more than three decades. Most famously known for his work on records like Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not by the Arctic Monkeys and of course 19 and 21 by Adele, Jim's first job was at a small studio in Cambridge called Spacewood Studios where he cut his teeth working under engineer and producer Owen Morris. However, after eight months, Jim moved to London to work at a much bigger studio in Wolsden called The Power Plant. Here he started as a tea boy, gradually working his way up, engineering many sessions outside of his job, learning more and more until he eventually became an engineer. Within a couple of years, Jim began working with producer Nelly Hooper on albums for Bjork, Massive Attack and many more. This led to his reputation building enough that he could finally stretch out into the world of production. Before we jump into the episode, I'd just like to say a huge thanks to everyone that's listened to the pod whilst we've been away, and especially thanks to those of you who have shared the pod, who've reached out to us on Instagram or Twitter, or given us a review on Apple Music. Those are super important. Our main goal with this podcast is to elevate the conversations surrounding live music, so please do drop us a DM over on at UK if you enjoyed an episode, or if you've got any suggestions for topics to cover, people to interview, or if you just want to chat we'd love to hear from you as always my name is drew jody and i'm with my good friend jack parker and here we kick off our interview with jim abyss discussing those early career highlights hi i'm jim abyss and you're listening to the discover live podcast what was it like then working on that bjork record i bet it was pretty crazy when it was that early on in your career it it was and well she was an very inspirational person and had a very unique approach to things and Mm. I guess she's one of the first people that probably um, subconsciously wanted to put parts of her very rough demo recordings into the finished thing Mm. there's always been something that had never really happened that people made a demo on their whatever home Mm. setup little cassette recorder or little reel to reel or whatever they had and going into the professional studio was a big leap in technology and number of people you worked with and the quality of rec- supposed quality of the recording. This was kind of, you know, even pre-samplers. You couldn't really use very much of a demo recording. It was hissy or the quality or whatever reasons. It wasn't an accepted thing to do. But she loved some of these little early things that she had. Mm. And uh, Nelly was from a kind of... Uh, he was a DJ and sound system background and into the very early stages of sampling. So he was happy to do that. So there were lots of elements of her scratch recordings mm. in that album. And it was the first time that I'd seen it done in, in a huge studio with a big budget, but mm. we were actually embracing the idea of taking elements of people's demos. Mm. So it was sort of taking the rough and ready parts that that were already perfect in a way because they were rough and because they were, they had that sort of live feel and, and, and using that in the record. Yeah, yeah. And I think that mm. around that time, um, I guess that time would have been leading us into uh, trip-hop becoming a you know popular genre and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and obviously hip-hop had been around for quite a while. And it was that idea of sort of mixing up 
different genres and different styles and different different recordings that were mm. all valid to make the final record. We are massive fans of the the Tape Notes podcast, and we were listening to the, the your discussion with Bombay Bicycle Club and how you um, you saw them live before agreeing to work with them. And how important is it for you to see artists live show before you work with them? You can remember that that Bombay gig from. Back way back way yeah, when they were like sixteen or I something. I do remember right? that. I, I I can't. Unfortunately, I cannot remember the name of the venue. It was in Islington, but I, I don't think it still exists. Unfortunately, but yes. It, well, they were very very young. Uh, they would, I think they were pre GCSEs. They were like fifteen wow. years old, <laughs> and they've been playing together at school for about a year. And um, uh, I, I, well, it's very important to see a band anyway because there's lots of things you want to find out about them. But yeah. yeah. I wanted to make sure they could, first of all, they could play. Um, yeah. And I also wanted to sort of see whether they could inspire an audience to, mm. you know, fall in love with them and do justice to the record you're going to make. That's mm. also important. Um, and then there's little things like, is there anything that's going to help you in the recording? So if anything from just guitar sounds to what's how do they play the song compared to a demo how mm. is it good that they all get really fast and energetic for the last chorus is or is that is that just a live thing or is that actually going to be important that you keep that idea when you're recording so there's lots of different things about a band live that you can sort of take ideas from for when you get in the studio i think yeah well, how did you like hear of bombay first can you remember how you came across them yeah, I'm, well, this is uh, slightly more embarrassing. I was a I was a friend of uh, Jamie, the guitarist's dad, because my my <laughs> first studio experience <laughs> in this little studio near Cambridge. Um, Jamie's dad, Neil, was a, is an excellent musician and a and a, a you know a very talented guitar player and writer and arranger to this to this day. And um, he was in a band called The Bible, who was signed to Chrysalis, and half of them lived in Cambridge. So. They did some recording at the studio that I was a I'd started out as, right. and I and I really liked Neil, so we'd sort of stayed in touch, and and um, he ran me up. I haven't spoken to him for a while, and he ran me up one day and went, "Never guess what? My son's in a band. I'd like you to hear him." And uh, after laughing quite a bit amongst ourselves, um, <laughs> he sent me a couple of demos, and I liked the songs anyway. And uh, I said, well, "Okay, well, I, I need to see them live, and then we'll mm. work out what to do." Can you remember what you thought of them when you saw them live, and why that made you want to work with them? Well, his voice is very, very unusual. Um, mm. It had, a, I mean, I think it's changed over time slightly, but he, it had a lot of vibrato, and he seemed quite sort of introspective. But there was just something amazing about the melodies and how they worked with the guitar parts. They didn't seem like a band of fifteen years old. They were, their songs were very sort of simple on the surface of things, but there was an intricacy to them, um, and the way that they used the two guitars together and the interplay mm. that just seemed like a band that had been playing for a long time and had worked a lot of things out mixed in with their kind of introspective sort of naivety. Oh, that's sort of yeah. a really unusual combination. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example of, like you said, having to, to see an artist live before working with them. Have you got any other examples of artists that uh, you maybe heard a demo of and then thought, I, I have to go see this, this band live? Ooh, well, there's, there's probably a lot of examples I remember I got I heard some tracks by the Noisettes. Oh, great! Um, from their first album, which were which was you know quite a sort of punky rock and roll kind of record, and I caught the the last like song and a half of a gig, <laughs> and um, I wasn't a, before that. I didn't know, know that too much about them, 
and thought I must go and see them alive again and then didn't for ages and about a year later got a call asking if I'd be interested in working with them in the studio mm. and I sort of thought I I knew what I was going to get but mm. I went to see them at the Astoria which is one of my favourite venues by the way I'm mm. just so sad that that place went yeah. amazing place and um, I just couldn't get over what a huge racket this three-piece band made I mean yeah. it, it was just amazing and so much energy and the demos that I got sent were they'd taken a lot of time to really craft sort of soulful pop songs and they just sort of programmed the drums and put various um, samples and stuff on it and we'd arranged to sort of meet up the next day to sort of chat about the the gig and maybe doing some work together and I and it was like I wasn't I couldn't quite get my head around it because they were so like visceral for want of a better word mm, live yeah, yeah. And then they had these new demos that were really poppy. And I was like, I, wow, well, I'm not sure how we're going to make this, <laughs> make this work. <laughs> and um, they didn't think that all the songs on the first album were the best they could be. And they were really wanting to craft really catchy, great pop songs. But they were also didn't want to lose being this great live band, which they'd sort of mm. built a reputation around. Mm. So we decided that if we we're going to work together, we would do everything live. Great. We'd treat it as a, like a live band to start with, and then we would apply more sort of um, studio pop techniques and mm. arrangement and layering and whatever on top of it, which doesn't sound like groundbreaking at all, but it, it was trying to keep the best of both worlds. Sure. Yeah. And um, even though it ended up as a more produced sounding record, if you if you ever listen to the just the rough mixes of the three of them in the studio, it's I mean they're all live and it's a, they're a r amazing takes. They're really a band at the top of their game. But the finished thing has loads of other elements to it. So did that really answer your question? I'm not sure it did. No, yeah, definitely. It did. Absolutely. It follows on quite nicely, actually, because I, I remember reading something about something that you did similarly, I think, with A Certain Romance for Arctic Monkeys, wherever ah, people say yeah. I am. Is, was that a similar process, like trying to capture the live stuff for a lot of that album well, as, as well? The, I mean, I think when you approach making a record, it, it depends on what you're trying to do with the record, yeah. how your production goes and, and how mm. much a live thing live element will influence what you're doing. So on the side of kind of the live show, definitely in, in influencing a recording, that Arctic Monkeys debut album is probably the most live, one of the, well, certainly one of the most live things I've ever done. Mm. And it was really all about trying to capture an essence of seeing them live. Because they, mm. when they started out, they built a massive following from doing live shows. They'd mm. never released any records. They just had that, a few demos on MySpace, I think it was then, and that had sort of caused a buzz in the music industry. But they already had this fully functioning group of fans who used to follow them everywhere, and they'd built this sort of huge reputation. So I went to see them play a show just before making that record at uh, the Grapes Pub in Sheffield, where they'd done their first ever show, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's from memory, it's just a little room above a pub, probably mm -hmm. about 100 people maximum. And so I stood there uh, when they came on, and I was the only person in the room that didn't know all the words to all the songs right. wow. it was just like a big party and in fact Alex didn't sing most of the set he just sang a first few lines and then turned the mic round and wow. the audience sang the song wow. and he turned it back round again and sing the chorus with them <laughs> it blew me away I mean they had they were not only were they an amazing band from an energy perspective but that was the first time I'd ever seen that phenomena the idea of like an online audience learning the words at that stage mm. of a band's career who's never had a record out. I mean, it, yeah. I don't think that happened before. It's also became evident that 
we had to kind of capture some of that. And also, the words were crucial. Now, you could argue the words yeah. are crucial in you know most forms of music, but I think still it's one of their strongest attributes, are, are his lyrics. Yeah. And it was crucial that however he recorded it, and it's going to sound obvious, but the, the rhythm was good and you could get every word because his words were so good. So that kind of forced that idea home to me. Particularly in that album as well, there's a lot of words almost. Yeah, know, lyrically, there's you know he's put puts a lot into every song. Mm. It's a lot of imagery. Absolutely, I mean that's an example of like a live performance and and their live show being crucial to their record. Um, equally, the stuff I think where you view them separately and mm. you try and make a record be the best record it can be, and then the live show you try and make the live show the best it can be, mm. and they may not be the same. I did a, did an album years ago with a band called Lady Tron, an album called witching out and from the very start of meeting them they just wanted to make a record kind of however was the best way of making that record yeah and they love playing shows there was never an idea that you would want to necessarily capture a live performance of them they would then mm. they would just interpret the recording to make the best show they could then when they went out so i think it's depends what you want out of your recording and is it is that about but like building an atmosphere in the studio, like how do you go about you know getting that out of a performance from from an artist or a band? Uh, I, well, I think there's lots of different ways. I think it's probably most significant for singers mm. because although I think it's important if you are going to play as a band to set up an atmosphere that the band enjoy playing in, but I think you hear the most difference. If the uh, if the singer is in the right frame of mind in the right atmosphere, I think that mm -hmm. comes across more in the performance probably than anyone else. And I think there's many different ways with that. It it's sometimes just simple things of lighting and choosing the best time of the day because as you work on an album, you get to know what suits say a singer. But also, I think it's to do with how much they like a studio experience and how much they like a live experience and how much they like their home demo experience and trying to get elements of that involved mm. um going back to the bombays jack never ever liked being in a booth doing his vocals he liked being in a studio and all the things you could do but never really felt comfortable in that sort of classic boothed off my you know mic yeah. lights and whatever and so I've, i always try to find less studio-y kind of places for, to record him he recorded most of his demo vocals under his duvet to stop waking his parents up when he was a kid <laughs> early stuff and uh, he always said that I just find it, he found it really odd walking into this big room with a, all the screens up ready for him and stuff mm -hmm. and we did a record in um, in Hamburg or part of this record in Hamburg and I just found this bathroom at the back of the building that had all tiles and echoey sound in there it wasn't soundproof it was set up for a studio and I just thought I'd ch chuck a mic in it and see if he liked singing in there. And it had this huge window overlooking yeah. the city at night. And wow. he did a vocal and I went, this is the best environment for me to sing I've ever <laughs> sung in a studio. And um, yeah. we did That's all so the vocals in there then and had to spend hours trying to find a mic that would pick him up and not the echo. And But <laughs> it, he, he loved just being relaxed that he wasn't in a studio. Is that on the on well, the second I, record? Yeah, well, it would have been the third album, record, actually. The um, like, sorry, yeah, flaws. Yeah. If you, flaws is the second record. Yeah, the one after. Yeah, yeah. But interesting that you said it's particularly the atmosphere affects the singers because another question that we had was, in contrast to to bands like Arctic Monkeys, 
when you're working with a singer like Adele, how much consideration of live performance does do, do you take into the studio? Are you still sort of creating that similar atmosphere? Well, she's a very particular example. And I wouldn't say I'm necessarily taking the particularly the, the gig experience, mm. but the live a live yeah. performance 100%. And especially on that first record, she'd recorded simple demos at home but she wasn't a studio animal at all mm. and she was actually quite impatient not in a in a rude way but she just wasn't interested in you know what compressor we're using or what speakers it was coming out of. she just really didn't <laughs> care she cared hugely about her performance being great and mm. the best it could possibly be and the setting up the scenario to, to deliver that but a lot of people increasingly are sort of Everyone's a kind of home producer, so mm. people are always, you know, they've always got a plug-in version of the equipment you're using. She was the opposite of that. So for me, it was very much like working with a, almost like a sort of 60s diva who would just come in and perform and go. It wasn't quite <laughs> that extreme, but it made us get everything completely right before she turned up at the studio. Yeah. So that if we were doing a live performance, her and a piano or her and something else or whatever... There was all, it was all ready to go with backup mics in case one died during it or whatever. So that it was all about getting her in mm. a good frame of mind, mm. going in and performing, and then she'd want to be there and choose the takes with you and and um, sort of make sort of artistic decisions about mm. that. And so therefore, it was all about the performance, even though we weren't necessarily trying to copy a gig. Mm. Did you have a feeling sort of early on that that she would uh, she would sort of propel to the heights that she did? No, and I don't think I, th I don't think you can ever tell how big someone's going to become, mm. um, if you're being honest. A lot of people claim they can. <laughs> uh, but you can tell whether something is special, mm. I think. And so you really do, you know, so you just hope that when it leaves the studio, the recording gets the best chance it mm. can get. And I knew that she had an amazing talent. I mean, quite an incredible voice, unique voice. And she was a really engaging, sort of lovable character. So if you yeah, could, definitely. if those records were going to give the chance and be heard by people, and she, she could be seen chatting about stuff and engaging with an interviewer, I thought she'd stand a really good chance. But no idea of the level that she would have yeah. eventually got got <laughs> yeah. onto. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? As well, we wanted to to sort of ask you about like the emotion in a, in a performance too, and I guess that maybe that fits for Adele or some other artists that that you've worked with, but. Is there a particular way to try and get us like a certain emotion or certain impact out of a performer when they're in the studio? Um, I think other than making them comfortable, I think, mm. uh, and also in, I would say sort of indulging ideas, like going along with uh, a concept or an idea to do something different. Um, mm. You end up getting a lot of times in the studio, you end up in preset patterns of way of working because you know you can get a result quickly. Mm. And you need to, because sometimes it's high pressure, you know, time is money and all that. But I think being able to experiment a little bit and knowing when it's going to be a blind alley or whether it's actually worth pursuing. You know, I talked about the idea of you know, trying to find a rooms that weren't studio-like for Jack from Bombay's. Mm. Um, I did a session with Peace years ago, with, uh, and Harry's quite a flamboyant character. But there's one song we did, um, this cover of 1998, and he wanted it to be really sort of creepy the start of that song and he almost likes to try to sing in a persona and he'd sung everything on that session really great but he just mm. couldn't get this bit 
so that he was happy with it. And I almost got a, almost didn't really understand what he was going for by the time we'd done these various takes. And he just said he just wanted it to sound odd when he was doing it and it just to feel un- uncomfortable. Mm. So we ended up having him lying down in the corner of the studio, pitch black with just toy mics and odd sounding things, mics and stuff in his headphones. <laughs> so it was, it was like disconcerting for him to do it. And he sort of instantly got into this character and um, sort of did it in two takes. Wow. Wow. Now, I don't know whether that was just sort of all in his mind, but I don't really care. He just wasn't getting something that he was happy with. Yeah. And so you just tried some different ideas, silly things maybe, but um, they're worth trying. I mean, I'd take that further. I'd, uh, on a record with a guy called Jack Peñate, of mm. his debut record, there was a song called Will You Die? And it was all about, you know, your experiences after after you've died and what will it be like and what will people think of you and sort of references a church, a reference a church in the lyrics. And you know what's coming. Um, again, we were struggling to get the right atmosphere on that one. And I found out that my local church was up for hire for events. And wow. so we hired it for the night and put him in the church. Yeah. And and had, you know, candles around him. And he and he sang a load of songs because he just loved being in this atmosphere. And sure enough, we got a great take, with including buses driving by. But it was <laughs> worth doing that to get something that we all really loved. Well, that's great. That's, we, that's um, great. We recently had Charlie Andrew on, a great producer, mm. and we recently had him absolutely on great producer. Yeah, and um, similarly, he was on tape notes as well. He was on with Alt J. Um, yeah. And one of the stories that he told was about one day they recorded twenty classical guitarists in one room just to get this really incredible guitar sound. And I and I guess th- that kind of led us to to think a great question that we could ask you is: Is there any other interesting stories of crazy things that you've done to to create a certain sound and and i guess you've kind of answered a couple there like you know moving into a church or a bathroom or what else have you done to to create a specific sound or is there anything where any any moment you thought how do we get to here really like oh that's a good question well i I remember doing a session uh with a bank of the rakes and Mm -hmm. we had this idea well i had had this idea of (laughs) trying to make this is a slightly sort of technical thing, but it, it seemed like a great idea at the time. You're familiar with a plate reverb, mm-hmm. which is basically a very thin piece of metal, huge, great sheet hanging with little pickups on it, yep. and it gives the creation, sorry, the impression that your the sound is in a huge, great church. So I decided I wanted to make a booth to record the drums in that was a giant plate reverb. So every wall <laughs> was a plate reverb. So I got a carpenter to build a massive frame with thin metal sheets hanging off it and put and encased the the drummer in this. And I think about six hours into moving mics and changing and transducers and all these things, by this point the drummer was absolutely spent, but I was determined that this was gonna work. And I really did I put him through hell to try and get this particular (laughs) sound of playing drums in within a plate reverb and it, one by one each band member and even my engineer at the time had really given up on this and were just th- looking at me like you're you're an idiot <laughs> and um, it was a huge great frame it, it, it took up half the studio space and eventually after dinner I said I gave up I said like hey it's not going to work but the frame was so big and it taken so long to assemble <laughs> that we couldn't take it down and get it out of the way so it got in the way for the whole rest of the session and <laughs> it made the whole rest of the recording really difficult because this stupid great huge frame was in the way. 
and it never <laughs> made it to the record. So I guess oh, that's, that's a, a sort shame. of concept egg on the face moment. That was yeah. What uh, what happened to the what happened to it? Did it did it, did it ever get any use in it? any other records or? No, no. I, I gave up on that. Con- <laughs> I still think it's a great concept, but um, yeah, no, it I, sounds I, like I, it would be amazing. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It was really <laughs> awful. <laughs> Maybe yeah. this should be like your lockdown uh, mission to like project. get yeah, yeah yeah new project. Try and get the right sound off of it. Yeah, <laughs> um, never know. And there should be loads of. I mean, there probably are loads of funny moments. I just can't think of one right at this moment. Um, oh, I, I'd really now you've said it. I can't think of anything. That's that's embarrassing. I mean, well, no, that was. I mean, you. I don't have an anecdote, few, anecdote ready. Sorry. There's, no, there's, no, there's you've given, us, you've given us a few great ones there. Yeah, anyway, so, some really great stuff. Yeah. Um, what is it like the first time you hear a, a record you produce being played at a live show? I think that depends on how good it sounds and and how well it goes down. Yeah. Uh, to a, to an extent, but <laughs> if it's gone. If it's gone well, I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've had, well, I, I think I just call them sort of hairs on the back of the neck moments, really, mm. the cliche. But you hope that the band are going to translate it really well and you hope that people are going to respond to it. And I think when when they just nail it and everyone's jumping up and down and singing along, mm. it just makes all the, you know, there's often stressful moments in making records and it makes everything you may have encountered sort of worthwhile at those yeah. moments. Mm. It really does because it's about the, it's about the reaction. It's about the moment, and it's about people to people reaction, and that's that's really what you're aiming for. So mm. they can be an amazing experience. Yeah, has that experience of of seeing a, a song being performed live that you produced have has that ever made you reflect on the production? Is there anything that you might have changed? Well, I, I, there's been times when I think maybe you've captured an, an intimate or delicate moment. And sometimes that doesn't always translate to a live, bigger stage scenario. Mm-hmm. And and if I think something isn't working, I'll, just, I'll afterwards, well, not, maybe not straight afterwards, but at some point in the next <laughs> few days, when I next see the band say, I think you should maybe rethink that arrangement because I just don't think that's translating well. Mm-hmm. But in terms of reflecting on a sort of sound of a record, for example, uh, again a, about the Bombays, this, this recently went to see their revisiting of their debut album they played a show at the Brixton Academy yeah, yeah we were, I was and there. I'd always thought that first record was quite dark and angsty mm. record mm. it certainly felt like it when we're making it but when I was just sort of standing there and, and the crowd were just going crazy they were all just dancing and singing the words and they but not only the words they were just singing along every guitar riff or synth melody it felt sort of more like a celebration mm. and the album sounded euphoric and it I never thought it was. I loved the record, but it certainly didn't feel like a celebratory euphoric record. Yeah, and I actually think it does have that quality in mm. some respects. Obviously, people picked up on that and in that moment, and so it changed how I viewed how the whole record was. Really, that's wow. really interesting. I think Bombay they they definitely have like a great warmth to them live. I think they, they, that yeah. always an amazing energy. Mm. I never really considered how how that might be so different. It must be a constant challenge to kind of keep your finger on the pulse and working with new artists. How do you go about finding, you know, new projects and emerging artists to work with, like Lily Moore and and Connie Constance? I think you've worked with as well. Actually. Yeah, I've I've actually met Lily Moore and worked with her a few times in the studio. She's great. She's got an amazing voice. Yeah, she's really nice. Yeah, it's a combination, and it I guess it always has been. Um, I have, I you know, if, if we look into the formal roots, I have a manager who is constantly chatting to you know labels and other managers and stuff about stuff but 
so work comes through that route because of records I've done before and your CV and, and whatever. And then I do my own research. Mm. Um, Connie came originally through my manager because of a connection with her A&R person. Mm-hmm. And I loved working with her. I think she's an absolutely unique personality. But I was actually, I found something recently myself because of working with Connie. She was due to play one of the Afropunk festivals last year or year before. And I was just reading online one day about that festival and what else was on. And there was a a feature on the Nova Twins. They were a striking-looking band. And so I looked up some videos and thought they were amazing. And... uh, I was actually working with another band at the time and and was talking about this band, Nova Twins, and they actually messaged them without me knowing. And the next day, I get a call, oh, sorry, an email from them uh, saying, oh, we sorry, we got your details from so-and-so. <laughs> and we're actually looking for a producer. And it was like, you you couldn't write it. I mean, the coincidence is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but that was just from me looking for a, a, one of Connie's gigs, and I discovered a band that I didn't, I'd never heard of, mm. and ended up making an album with them. It's actually the last album I finished, and um, yeah. So there's many different routes to it. Mm. What was it like working with with Nova Twins? How was that experience? It was awesome, actually, because I've just sort of discovered that my favourite way of recording, and I have obviously because we're talking about live music. So I've been talking about sort of the idea of capturing sort of performances in the studio. Mm. But I've made many, many different sorts of records and I found myself slightly falling into a trap which was influenced by how the industry had gone where we were starting to just sort of replicate demos Mm. and recording things piecemeal and performance was starting to become less and less important to to everybody involved. Some of the young artists coming in to make the records, weren't really expecting to have to perform. A lot of the sort of uh, business side of things weren't allowing you the budgets or didn't see any importance in that side of mm. things. Mm. So I was getting starting to get quite frustrated and was missing working with a band who really could play live. And so when we met for the first time, and I'd asked about their recordings they'd done and how they wanted to make a record in their minds, the first thing they said was, well, I want to play live and... We've got a really, we think we've got a pretty interesting sound and we want to get that. That's the starting point for everything. Mm-hmm. It was instantly, obviously, resonated with me. And I was like, well, that's amazing because I so do I, because I've been getting bored of constructing records and editing them. So I went to see them rehearse and even just the difference between their demos and their previous recordings, which, you know, I liked, to sitting in a rehearsal room, which they'd set up like a gig. Mm. It was just chalk and cheese. I mean, the, the power they had. Um, again as a three piece was incredible and it just sort of made sense that why wouldn't you try and capture what they're doing in the room yeah absolutely um anyway yeah so so yeah i loved working with them because they really value performance yeah they're not trying to just make it just like the gig but they're trying to have a, a fundamental is what they do at that moment starts everything that's the building block yeah and that absolutely i totally agree that for certain genres of music and certain people that is absolutely the best way to capture it mm. yeah working as a as an engineer I've, I've sort of seen firsthand that there's been this huge rise in the sort of successful bedroom producers or yeah how important do you think the raw sound that you get from a live performance is versus something that you know is recorded by one person on a laptop I, well again i think it's dependent on what style of music you're working on Mm. 
so there's loads of great music made with a laptop Absolutely. And, and I don't and but there's things you can't do on a laptop mm. so I still believe that the most important thing is the you know the ideas and the feel I mean I, I grew up in the sort of first got into music in the whole post-punk world so it was all about the ideas yeah. and, the, and the feeling coming across but what I really have think is slightly kind of disappointing is there's a sort of lack of importance placed on the skills of production that aren't from the laptop world mm -hmm. it's like it's just been forgotten about and i think it's it's not because it makes the recordings better it's because it's grown out of necessity it's grown out of some a and r inexperience it's grown out of budgetary considerations mm. and it's just easier and cheaper and quicker to get someone to knock something up on a laptop than it yeah. is to go into a studio rehearse a band get them to play it and and consequently all these things kind of feed into each other so there is gradually less and less emphasis placed on live performance whether it's in the studio or playing live mm. mm -hmm. and um so a lot of as i said before i think that you get a lot of um, young musicians who don't really expect to have to perform when they come in the studio. They expect to sing along or play along with what's coming out the speakers, and then you'll sort it out. And I think there's there's two really well, there's lots of drawbacks, but two really major drawbacks to that. I think a band that have played together for a couple of years, um, you know, rehearsing every week and playing shows, there's an interplay between them that is unique to them. Definitely. And they and they make the best of the limited equipment they've got and their resources, and they end up making something that sounds unique. So why you would not celebrate that mm. thing? If you go and see that band live and you absolutely love it, why wouldn't you try, at least try, and capture some element of that on your recording? Because it will be unique. So why would you have a band that they may not play all in time, for example, but they play in, in a groove or feel whatever word you want to use that's unique to them and it's something mm. that you love why would you not keep that mm. and i think all too often we we sort of go to that idea of just yeah play along that'll do and now we'll put it all in time all in tune so mm. you've lost already something that's unique to that band because you're making a computer make decisions on what those elements are mm. it's not down to the people it's down to the computer making it look good on a grid yeah now that has its place in production but it's not right for everything and i think you lose things if that's your just your default way of working every single time do you think that's that's part of people becoming sort of victims of a formula or trying to find something that kind of fits a, a process that kind of fits everyone rather than looking at how a band are unique and a bit bespoke and trying to play on that a bit more oh completely uh, um it, yeah i would be just the same if i was starting out now and i only had a tiny budget and I had my laptop and a mic and loads of great plugins and a, and a whatever I would make different music than than what I what I would try and do yeah now myself because it's just you you work within the the scenario you're in yeah so I don't blame anyone for this at all but it, but I do think it's a lot of things influencing it so the more people that do that so everything is perfectly in time and in tune mm. the audience here becomes more uh used to hearing that mm -hmm. and when you hear a, a record that hasn't been put exactly in tune you start to think oh my god that sounds a bit out of tune well you never did so <laughs> if unless it's actually <laughs> a problem it isn't a problem is it yeah it's just a human 
And I think maybe it's a cyclical thing that will, you know, it goes around that technology leads for a while and then more real things lead become mm. more popular again. And But I do think that we are gradually just weaning ourselves off the human element. And I think that's a real shame mm. because that's what makes it, again, I keep saying unique, but that's surely what is important to lots of things, lots of art forms. Do you, like, what, what advice would you give to any aspiring producers or, or producers early on in their career at the moment then you know what, what advice would you give to them people who are just sort of making their way in the industry uh, to try and get involved in lots of different sessions mm. so helping out on different genres there's no genre you'll learn more from but just learn from all of them and mm. when i started out uh in studios it was just before or just around the time that sort of acid house exploded and initially I wasn't that into it but I started to hear more interesting records from that genre and went to some um, early sort of raves and there's elements of it that I really liked and I, and at the same time there was a session that was kind of metal and I, again it wasn't my genre but it was fascinating seeing what they did with how they made their drums sound the way they made the way they did it and I think it's really good to just work on different things because mm. you'll just learn from different different people different techniques and then you find out what is important to you and um so yeah try and work on as many things as possible and learn from as many people as possible because you will uh, without even realizing at the time you'll learn stuff and you'll borrow from it later on a session when you're doing something you'll think shit what about what about that we could do <laughs> borrow that technique and try it and it might be amazing yeah absolutely um I have think, you found that yourselves from what you're doing? Do you find that you learn loads of stuff from things you wouldn't expect to? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I, th <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, at first we, in, a, in our own careers, definitely, but even just doing from doing Discover Live, like at first we were just interviewing artists about their favorite venues and live music. And uh, you got a couple of different stories and you got some interesting stuff. But what we found really fascinating were having conversations like this with different people through the in throughout mm. the industry who have just different ways of looking at everything in it and i find that really fun and fascinating because you realize the impact that live music has and, and music in general has in, in so many different ways and, and how everything crosses over it's just mm. can i say one other thing yeah, i totally agree with you. and i'll say one th more thing about the sort of recording live in the studio which i've banged on about but it's different <laughs> it's different to a live gig mm. you can record a live gig and you may not want to listen to that a thousand times there yeah, might yeah. just be the, the whatever the separation or the mistakes or whatever the reason but there was a particular thing about uh, performing really well in the studio and capturing that i think that's mm. just i think that's being lost mm. and um it's different but as important as a live performance on a stage yeah and you know we're losing all of that <laughs> to an extent um it's a shame yeah, yeah. No, I, um many many bands will debut songs at shows before they're recorded often before they go into the studio they might sort of write in a rehearsal studio go play it live and then they might go back and rethink the writing but as you said um that's happening less and less when because you're getting people that aren't thinking about performing live um so how important do you think that process is that bands do do that that they write the songs together they play them live they then address things that you know might be wrong well, I do. I think what I think that's it is vitally important. But I actually think that 
this is one of the potential benefits from the home laptop recording mm. scenario because when I started out, so few people knew anything about recording. I mean, it was yeah. there were you know a few thousand people in Britain who were involved in recording music, probably, yeah. uh, and about three college courses. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> and now there's you know every single uni arts college sixth form has a course in recording. There's yeah. hundreds of thousands of people doing all trying to get into this industry, and and a quarter the number of jobs for them that they used mm. to be. So everybody now, because it's so easy and accessible, any, anyone can have a kind of laptop recording scenario. Most ba- um, most bands have one or two members who are pretty adept engineers mm. and producers. And so you can make the the process between trying stuff out live, then going back and tweaking your demo, and then going back and redoing it live, whatever, mm. before you actually make a definitive recording. You can actually make that quite fluid and and I would have, you know, I actually many years ago, I would have loved to have had that flexibility because they were very separate. You went and did a tour, and then or or you went and made an album, and then there was no overlap between them at all. And you and you might try out a song and tweak an arrangement, but mm. people didn't have home recording setups, so you never got to do that fluid process. So I actually yeah. think laptop recording can help that definitely if yeah. people value the live side of it. Yeah, that's not something I thought of before. That's really interesting. Certain songs can uh, really uh, emotionally move you in a live performance. How do you go about recreating that emotion in a, a studio space? I, I think that's very difficult, if I'm honest. Um, and I think a lot of a live performance emotion comes from the relationship between the performer and the audience in that moment, and every mm. moment is unique. So I don't mm. think you can ever really try and create recreate that and i have tried i i did a a recording with a a folk duo from kansas and we recorded in nashville they were called madison ward and the mama bear and they both sat and sang and played acoustic guitars mm-hmm. and we did about I don't know, 14 songs and but there was a couple that for whatever reason we, we just couldn't get right and mm. they were really very spontaneous performers and I don't really mean that in terms of improvisation, but they you really never knew what you were going to get. Um, like a particular take could be magical or just not happen at all. And there was, didn't seem to be a reason and they couldn't really explain it themselves. But they definitely said that they were more comfortable in a live scenario in the studio. Mm. So on these couple of songs that were tricky, we decided to do a little gig and we got friends and family and a few people from the studio and set them up like a little gig. And they played however many songs, half a dozen songs or something. Mm. And uh, they loved it because they got a reaction. And I told people just to wait a few seconds afterwards if they wanted to clap or whatever. <laughs> so it was like a mini gig. And one of the songs, absolutely nailed, that we really needed. Yeah. Um, a track called Down in Mississippi. It was better than anything we tried before. Wow. But another song, I don't know why, um, <laughs> track called Silent Movies, just never worked then. We had to go back and do it again in a different convoluted way <laughs> and, I, and I think that you know both songs were loved equally by the audience because they were in the moment mm. and they were loved by the band playing to them but in terms of repeated listen there was just something not right about the one that we I don't we didn't end up using and something brilliant about one of them so mm. I I guess it's a little bit random you can't ever recreate that moment in a gig mm. but as long as what you end up with has an emotion that's kind of the most important thing mm. I think and I guess that's the thing about live performance is that 
it's unique and you'll and it will never be the same way again so yeah, sort of capturing exactly. that is really important but i think you'll get a lot closer to it than if you'd made the guitarist start with a click in his headphones and played a guitar version which we'd have played very accurately mm. yeah and then sung on top and then the other person does their uh, you will you will get something you might get something great like that but it'll be very different than if you actually just sit and play it as a performance yeah. do you think there's an aspect as well of the a togetherness or collectiveness of people playing together that that you kind of lose a little bit too if you're just listening to through the headphones and you're doing it on your own and you're just playing you know like a guitar oh, part 100 percent. you people people react to things without even knowing it, it's not mm. a conscious thing. Yeah. And I made some, well, I made lots of mistakes um, in in doing this this job. And when I first started out producing, I was very into the studio and the gear and the sonics and the effects and all the things you can manipulate. And I loved it; it was my world. And I'd kind of lost sight for a while of of actually what was important about performance. Mm. And for the first few things I tried to do, like little EPs here and there with a band or whatever, I would be so into getting the sound that was in my mind. Yeah. I didn't care that I knackered the drummer out because I spent hours <laughs> trying to get this daft sound I wanted to get so that he couldn't play properly. And I wouldn't care if the singer was, you know, with a cup of tea walking around singing great. I didn't even notice. Mm. And I and I, <laughs> one thing I learned was you have to be ready to capture things, and they are right. important. It's not right for every session, but if people are great performers, why are you not? You just need to capture them. So I make sure now I get I record every I record the first take and the warm ups and all those things. I mean, it sounds obvious things, but don't let the the technical stuff get in the way of that. Mm. And some of those moments where you've captured something that you haven't got all your mics working or your whatever, but there's something brilliant about it. I think that has a really important value mm. and is a better basis sometimes for building on than the perfectly sort of arranged sonic thing that you had in your mind that you now instruct people right now we're going yeah that's mm. not always the best way I, I mean for for andy and i you've made some of our favorite albums ever i mean we grew up listening to that first Arctic monkeys album a hundred times over every week and mm. uh but also like uh, in love by pieces. I love that album, and that really takes me to a time and place when we both went to Glastonbury in 2013 and like sort of discovered Peace mm. as a band, and uh, that was like the soundtrack to our summer, which yeah, was a pretty definitely. good summer. It was a great summer. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. thank you for for like for for those records because they're yeah they really are incredible. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, and, and thanks for asking me on. It's been really interesting chatting about it. Really Thank cool. you, guys. Ooh, nice one. Really good chatting to you guys. Best of luck with this as well. It's really good what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Take care. What a lovely guy, and what a brilliant interview. Um, for me, as a writer and a producer, I love to get any insight into the recording process and how live performance can affect that. So thank you again to Jim for getting involved. As always, before we wrap up, we'd just like to remind everyone again to please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, share us with your mates, reach out over Instagram if you'd like at Discover Live UK, or even drop us an email at info at discoverlive.co.uk. We will be back much sooner than you think for season two of Discover Live, bringing you a whole new format, which we're very excited to dive into. We've got some brilliant guests lined up, so keep your eyes peeled as we'll be announcing that very soon. But until then, go see some live music, support your local venues, and keep discovering live. <laughs>